This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays, filling in for Gil Gross. On this edition of America Changed Forever, America emerges from the pandemic. New Centers for Disease Control guidelines are an indication that we are getting closer to getting back to what was normal. Coming up, we'll talk to Dr. Peter Hotez. The vaccine scientist and I will discuss one of his primary concerns about what's not happening in the southern U.S. that could mean serious problems for the rest of America as it tries to emerge from this pandemic. You know, if you remember last summer is when we saw that big southern surge in the southern states. I'm worried something like that could happen again. Also, we'll hear from Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, who is leading the Biden administration's task force on health equity. What's been very troubling is we have seen what appear to be kind of targeted disinformation messages to some of, you know, the communities that have been hardest hit. And what about America's restaurant scene and the new COVID rules by the CDC? So they're happy that they um, are able to open up at full capacity again. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of them are, are saying it's a little bit hasty. But first, the CDC announced earlier this month that people who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 no longer need to wear a mask or physically distance, whether indoors or outdoors, in most circumstances. President Biden called it a milestone, and others have called it a turning point. Just over a week into this new guidance, how are things going? Dr. Peter Hotez says that there are some areas where he is concerned. Dr. Hotez, let's talk about the CDC guidance. How do you think it's been received? And do you think it's working in terms of opening up the economy? Well, you know, the the CDC guidance was based on, you know, science. If you listen to what Rochelle Walensky, Dr. Walensky had to say, because we're seeing reductions in transmission and and now anyone who wants to get vaccinated can get vaccinated. So we have vaccine availability. And the fact now we've got data showing not only are these vaccines interrupting uh, uh, symptomatic illness, but they're also dramatically slowing uh, the uh, likelihood of your getting asymptomatic uh, infection or transmitting it because it seems to be decreasing virus shedding. And, and that's based on studies coming out of Israel. So I think that was the basis for it. I think the one couple of things I might have done a little bit differently. I would have hung on a little bit more because I think we still have a pretty high level of virus transmission across the country. It's still going down. And I think that's really important to contextualize mask suggestions, recommendations, or mandates in the con- in the context of how much virus transmission is going on because the vaccines are not perfect. They're great, but they're not perfect. So once virus transmission's down, then I think we can go around maskless with even more safety. So I might have held off a few more weeks to the summer, but I, I don't fault it as much as uh, some 
some of my other colleagues. I don't, I don't think it's so bad. And, and, and once virus transmission goes down further, then we're going to be in much better shape. Um, the problem, there's two, two other caveats. One, um, uh, in the Southern states where vaccination rates are still really low, um, we might expect transmission to go back up during the summer. So we have to keep that kind of situational awareness in mind. I think the other is, you know, we're now starting to learn how these vaccines perform in, in individuals who are on immunosuppressive therapy, either because of organ transplants or bone marrow transplants or being on steroids or getting CAR T therapy. And that's, I think, another important qualification. Those individuals may still want to wear masks or may need to wear masks when they're in, when they're in public settings. And I think that needs to be emphasized as well. The New York Yankees, and I know this might not be something that troubles you too much, given the fact that you're a Houston Astros fan, but the New York Yankees had this COVID outbreak. Nine people on the team who were vaccinated tested positive for COVID. The experts called them breakthrough infections. Yeah, well, of course, you know, this adds a new, uh, new meaning to the word competing interests, right, uh, as, an, as an asterisk man. But, but, um, uh, uh, but, but be that as it may, you know, I think what, you know, I think one of the messages that we have to think carefully about, uh, well, not messages, but, you know, what the science is telling us, the science is telling us that um, there are big reductions not only in clinical illness, but asymptomatic spread and asymptomatic infection in vaccinated individuals. Some of the studies coming out of Israel suggest that even if if you're vaccinated and still get asymptomatic infection, it may not be sufficient to transmit it to others. So that, and then you might say, well, if that's true, why are we bothered? Why do we still test? If once people are vaccinated, unless they unless they're sick or they have symptoms, and I think that's where we may need to head because it may just drive us crazy doing routine testing of vaccinated individuals. They may still be having the virus to a low extent, but not enough to transmit the illness. We're all hoping to get back to the ballpark, even though I know you're an Astros fan and you probably don't want to come back to the Bronx again, given the reception that the Astros got the last time they were there. Let's talk some more about the pandemic and what you've dedicated your career to doing, studying coronaviruses. Well, what I actually have been devoting my career to developing vaccines for diseases that the pharma companies are not, are not interested in because they're not money makers. They're mostly vaccines for the diseases of the world, affecting the world's poorest people in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. So we've developed vaccines for schistosomiasis and hookworm infection, Chagas disease, all of the diseases you've never heard of because they're incredibly they're incredible they're incredibly common but they uh, almost always affect people living in extreme poverty and then for for similar reasons we adopted a coronavirus vaccine program about a decade ago we were introduced to two colleagues at the New York Blood Center Shibu Jiang and Lan Yindu had a very interesting idea for making coronavirus vaccines and they partnered with us we wrote a grant to the NIH and it got supported so we developed SAR a vaccine for SARS and MERS and then when the COVID-19 sequence came along we adapted that to the COVID-19 and now we're scaling up production of a low-cost recombinant protein vaccine in India with our um, partners and known as Biological E. They're one of the big vaccine producers. And that vaccine's in phase three trials. And the interesting thing about our vaccine compared to the others 
is, you know, when all our, our whole approach to developing vaccines is to make simple, low cost, unfussy, what some people call people's vaccines for these diseases. So we just took the same approach to COVID-19 and, and it looks really good. So I'm hoping that now biologically has the capacity to scale it up to a billion doses. And we've never made a billion of anything before. And that's exciting. And now phase three trial. So I'm hoping it comes in and fills a critical public health gap for, especially for African countries, Latin America, and, and some of the low income Asian countries. You know, when you look at the numbers, more than a billion people in sub-Saharan Africa, more than half a billion people in Latin America, almost, you know, three quarters of a billion and half a billion people in the low-income countries of Asia. When you start adding up all the numbers, we're talking four, five, six billion doses of vaccine. And so what we really need is, uh, what I would like to see is the Biden administration exert some greater leadership in global health and say, you know, for one, outline the scope of the problem and say, this is what we need to do. We need a plan to provide 6 billion doses and distribute 6 billion doses. And instead, we're so far kind of getting small incremental things, which are quite modest in scope and, and not adequate. You're only as strong as your weakest link. And so I'm wondering if that applies to the response to COVID-19 as well. And if if you have areas that aren't getting vaccinated, where there is this spread, this transmission, it's not a good sign for all of us on this planet. Yeah, it's both a humanitarian urgency and it's the right thing to do, but also it's in our enlightened self-interest because we're not going to stop COVID transmission globally. And then, you know, oftentimes when I bring this up, the question that journalists ask me is, well, why does it always have to be the United States that does this? Why can't others? And to which I say, well, you know, that's that's life in the big city. I mean, if you look at... Um, you know, look at our greatest catastrophes over the last hundred years, right? We needed the United States leadership to defeat fascism in, in World War II. We needed the United States leadership to end the Cold War. We needed the United States leadership to create the PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, to put people on antiretroviral drugs. That's just the way it is. This thing is not going to end without U.S. leadership. I really appreciate your expertise. And I especially appreciate the fact that you were willing to talk about the Yankees. And I understand how difficult that was, given the fact that you're an Astros fan. Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you. Many thanks. Wishing you all the best and appreciate the opportunity. When we come back, I'll be joined by Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith. She is leading the Biden administration's Health Equity Task Force. Stay with us. This is America Change Forever. Welcome back to America Change Forever. There are racial health disparities that the pandemic really exposed. People of color have been infected with the coronavirus and hospitalized at higher rates than white Americans. And also, according to the CDC, they have died of the illness at nearly three times the rate of white Americans. Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith is leading the Biden administration's Health Equity Task Force. Dr. Marcella, is it the highest risk communities that are really still having a difficult time getting access to the vaccines? You know, we saw from the beginning of the pandemic, and, and I think this is our, our collective understanding now, is COVID-19 did not create inequities uh, in our society, but certainly took advantage of them. And from the very start, we saw, you know, that communities of, of color in particular were getting hit disproportionately, suffering in terms of rates of infection and hospitalization. Um, and death. And so this has to be just part of the, the, the truth that we carry forward is the communities that have been 
you know, hardest hit and highest risk, um, we have to do everything possible to connect with them. So whether it's about race, as I mentioned, or place, you know, we, we talk about our rural neighbors and thinking about geography and its influence there. So we have seen, you know, very positive trends um, in terms of the uptake of vaccination, but still, you know, questions remain. And you'll see that um, what the administration has done and President Biden's announcements really focus in on some of those structural barriers. So having a, a vaccination venue close to you is necessary, but sometimes insufficient. You know, so for some folks, it's transportation is a challenge. We are grateful for the partnership with Uber and Lyft donating those rides to help people get to and from vaccine. You know, President Biden made sure that for those who need paid time off, right, to get vaccinated, maybe to recover from some of the expected side effects, to encourage uh, businesses to provide that for employees, to provide a tax credit for small and medium businesses to do that. So now it's about kind of that one-on-one, -on -one, making sure that those barriers for individuals and communities are addressed and overcome. It looks like the messaging is breaking through. I mean, I recall seeing this ad with uh, Director Spike Lee in it. He's talking about access to the vaccine and putting someone in, a, in some sort of rideshare service, an Uber, for example. And, you know, I don't know if it's Uber or Lyft, but that's the kind of messaging that you're talking about. Yes. You know, it has to be a multi-pronged approach and partnership, collaboration at the core, at the center. So really grateful, you know, for all of the partners who are stepping up, be it private sector, you know, but also thinking about those community-based organizations, those faith-based organizations who are doing a lot of the work on the ground to talk to, you know, their members, their clients, their congregants. Uh, about the importance of vaccination, but really just about making sure they have accurate information, you know, but also working with some of these influencers, you know, thinking about that entire gamut of trusted messengers, but also being sure that the message is tailored. You know, we don't make assumptions about, you know, why people might still be deliberating about getting vaccinated. We just want to make sure that everyone has the key information they need. Um, we have such a challenge with the misinformation and disinformation that's out there, but this sort of very comprehensive network of partnerships we think is working to help build confidence in the vaccines across the country. What kind of disinformation is still out there? Is there anything specific you can point to? You know, what's been very troubling is we have seen some what appear to be kind of targeted disinformation messages to some of, you know, the communities that have been hardest hit and continue to perpetuate um, things for which there there isn't any any evidence. I mean, I'm always grateful to people to show up in spaces and answer people's real questions, real questions about the vaccines. And, and we know that we have three vaccines that are highly effective that work and right? keep people from getting seriously ill, from being hospitalized, you know, from dying so importantly. And hundreds of millions of doses have been given safely. And so making sure people know that, but just some of the things that we heard from the beginning, and, and I don't even want to repeat them, to be honest, because they are so um, uh, untrue, just no credibility to them, but really just working around some people's worst fears in the space, but just really uh, encouraging everyone to make sure you're getting your information from someone that you know, that you trust, and that you know has your best interests at heart, and really to take some of these messages that we see come across social media with a grain of salt. Somehow millions of people are ingesting this disinformation, unfortunately. And I've heard White House officials say to counter that, that among the most important messaging tools around are people in your own neighborhood, people you know, people in your community, people who've already gotten the vaccines. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, you know, we often say, you know, we're at war with the virus, but 
we're, we're also at war with these disinformation and misinformation campaigns. You know, the, the, the Biden-Harris administration, you know, recognizes this. Several, I think, important initiatives have been launched um, specifically to address this challenge around the conspiracy theories and the false information that's out there. So we can look at our community core, you know, well over at this point, 8,000 partners, these trusted messengers, many, many with national footprints in terms of making sure people who get asked questions kind of have the most current information to share with those who trust them and their their opinion and their stance. That's critical. But also knowing that we have to push resources into many of those you know, just again, community-based organizations and others who can help in real time counter this. But, you know, you're absolutely right. It is this gargantuan challenge and it's historic almost in scope, but we're very confident that, you know, people are going to hear their friends, their neighbors, their peers, hear their vaccination stories, and that's going to help them um, in their decision-making. Well, I got my vaccine and it you know, speaking from personal experience, it does give you confidence. For example, I've been traveling this week in Virginia Beach, and I actually went to a hotel where they had signs up that said, if you've been vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. And so I was looking around and hoping, of course, the people who weren't wearing masks had been vaccinated. But I also felt this confidence and this sense of relief being able to take your mask off in these public areas and breathe in this fresh air. Yes, enjoy. Take that deep breath in. You know, let's all just reclaim our joy and get ourselves connected with all the things that we've been missing this past year plus. I want to tap into your knowledge of the inequity in the medical system. This is not something that has developed because of this pandemic. I mean, this has been happening for decades in this country. Absolutely. And, you know, what I what I say is that we've we've had a collective witnessing as a as a country, but you're right. You know the the pandemic has exacerbated what was pre-existing, and and we can look across sectors. Certainly, we can look um, in the healthcare and healthcare delivery sector, and we know to your point, long-standing inequities. You know, and and when we talk about kind of why people might still be deliberating now, it's important to begin by acknowledging that that there are historic but also contemporary real um, real life sort of experiences that, that people have as they try to navigate, uh, be it healthcare, you know, be it governmental systems, where they aren't treated with the dignity and respect um, that, that they quite frankly deserve. And so uh, really can contribute to, to some folks saying, you know, these institutions haven't proven themselves trustworthy before. And so I'm not sure that I trust them now. So we, we acknowledge that. And it is on all of us, you know, as a doctor and certainly um, as, as someone working with the administration to rebuild that trust. And that is something we're deeply committed to. I tell you, I am optimistic, though, Jeff. I do feel as though we can meet this moment that, you know, the history books are going to judge us. Once we kind of all have this information, what do we do with it? And, and it really is the opportunity now for us to to make transformative change um, so that everyone in our country, you know, can have access to high quality health care um, as one of the important steps moving forward, but also, you know, pathways to economic opportunity, to educational equity. I know we're all worried about our children and the educational losses of this past year. And so, you know, this is our work now is to think about recovery and what we do differently so that we build back better, get to a better new normal. Dr. Marcella, I think you know that when we talk about equity, there are a lot of people in this country who who think, oh, they're talking about black folks or they're talking about people of color. But really, that's not true. 
what we're talking about here are people across this country, people who, for whatever reason, are at the lower end of the economic scale and they just don't have access to health care, Frank. Yes, I am so glad that you raised this point because, you know, in our country, when we talk about everyone having the opportunity to achieve their optimal health, that is a big tent. So whether it's, as you mentioned, you know, folks who are living at the margins of the economy, people with disabilities, you know, folks who, you know, again, are, um, uh, whether it is folks of color or people who live in rural communities, there's so many groups who really, when we think about the, the diminished potential, you know, we all suffer when things are uh, inequitable. And so it is in our collective benefit to be sure that we are not systematically in any way disadvantaging any group of people in our country. Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, I appreciate your input. Good luck getting the message out because, frankly, millions of us are hoping to regain a sense of normalcy and and get to a place where we can, wow, spend time with the grandparents once again. Won't that be great? I know. My kids are so excited for that. I told them we're, we can look forward to a, a different kind of holiday season. So, you know, it's really, it's really a great moment for our country. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marcella Nunez-Smith. When we come back, restaurants in some cities going to 100% capacity. What does that mean for restaurant goers? And did you hear that some restaurants are actually offering potential employees signing bonuses? Yeah, that's happening. Stay with us. This is America Change Forever. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to America Change Forever. Restaurants are going to be putting the tables closer together as they welcome more customers with the new CDC guidance. Laura Hayes wrote an article for the Washington City Paper about restaurants opening up under the latest CDC guidelines. Laura, what is happening in D.C.? Starting uh, Friday, May 21st, restaurants will be able to open at full capacity, same for bars. And along with that, all restrictions on um, related to social distancing, such as not being allowed to seat staff bars, keeping tables six feet apart, all of those restrictions go out of the way. Um, go away. And I think that, um, you know, servers will be happy that they no longer have to bring their tape measure with them to work to space up tables. Um, But at the same time, um, this change is really drastic. We were at 25% capacity um, for the past many months dating back, I think, to December. So we are going from 25% uh, capacity indoors to 100% with no restrictions. And at the same time, 
Um, our mayor, Muriel Bowser, has also lifted our mask mandate. Um, so restaurants are also um, figuring out whether or not um, they will continue to wear masks and, and require their customers to require, um, wear masks as well. And is it similar to what we're seeing in cities across the country? Yes, uh, because the CDC came out with um, their recommendations um, last Thursday, and um, most cities and states kind of followed suit to bring their um, policies in line with what they were recommending. So, yeah, this is... Um, happening across the country. And the other thing that's happening across the country is um, a staffing crisis. And um, so this reopening and this fresh demand from vaccinated diners um, is ramping up at the same time that restaurants can't find workers to, um, to have the manpower to accommodate them. Why can't they find workers? What's happening with the workforce? This is, you know, a really nuanced situation. Um, after some downtime, um, you know, when they were laid off for the most part of the pandemic, uh, they did a lot of thinking, these servers and bartenders and cooks, and, and they're tired of the wages and the work culture and the general lack of benefits. Um, restaurants lag behind other sectors uh, when it comes to things like health insurance. Um, and the workers that are ready to come back, they're being really selective, you know, as they should. They're looking for places where they feel supported by their bosses. Um, a lot of workers I've talked to, you know, they reported feeling abused during the reopening process because, you know, uh, they were these enforcers of these COVID protocols. And so they had to deal with customers who got unruly about masks and other rules. And, um, you know, a lot of times managers didn't back them up. We even had some local organizations here in D.C. that held de-escalation classes to try to um, empower these workers to better handle stressful situations. Um, so what you're seeing in D.C. and, and um, elsewhere is a lot of, um, you know, chumming of the water, so to speak, with uh, things like signing bonuses and recruitment bonuses and um, a lot of things like that. But I think that re restaurant workers would be more likely to return to work if, if the wages and benefits uh, were improved. Signing bonuses in the restaurant industry? Right. Yeah, that's a, um, in, you know, my eight or nine years covering this industry, I haven't seen that before. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that 250 bucks, um, how, how attractive that is, but. Um... <laughs> Obviously, it's not anything like Wall Street signing bonuses, but it can still make a difference. Nope, it's uh, no, not at all. Um, it's yeah, about, a, you know, a busy brunch shift um, or, or working a busy weekend, I think, for a server. Um, so I'm not sure that that's going to do the trick. And I actually reported on a, a restaurant yesterday or two days ago that um, is even offering these bonuses in cryptocurrency. Um, because they think that'll attract kind of um, the younger younger crowd. Um, to the older crowd, that probably sounds shady, but to the younger crowd, probably sounds cool. I guess so. I, I mean, I asked the CEO, I said, you know, this isn't a really great time to be uh, pushing cryptocurrency now that we are really starting to understand its environmental impact. And uh, to that question, I got no comment. So A lot of people probably don't understand cryptocurrencies. So with this upcoming change in the pandemic rules, are restaurateurs welcoming this change or are they a little concerned about it? Um, both. Um, you know, I think they're trying to recoup uh, 14 months of, of really strangled revenue opportunities. And so they're happy that they um, are able to open up at full capacity again. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of them are, are saying it's a little bit hasty. Um, there were a bunch of um, D.C. council members and um, some other big groups like Monumental Sports, which is behind um, all of our big sports venues in D.C., that were pushing our mayor to just lay out a step-by-step -step plan similar to what some other states um, like Michigan have, have done, where 
uh, reopening is more in stages and um, is tied to specific metrics, like the percentage of the population that's been vaccinated. Um, but instead, we just went, you know, full throttle, um, wide opening, and, and people aren't ready for that. Um, and so what I think is really important for everyone to keep in mind is just because you can do something doesn't mean you have to. So a lot of restaurants are pushing back and saying, you know, hey, guys, uh, you know, we're sticking at a, a lower capacity limit for now. So if you see open tables, you know, don't assume that we can seat you. Um, we may have, you know, one line cook in the back instead of five. And so we can't sit you down for dinner knowing that, you know, your food will take a really long time to get to your table. Laura Hayes, thanks. Thank you for having me. Coming up, what about the rest of the world and the vaccine? Still ahead, how vaccine makers are being asked to hand over their data to share with other countries. Will they do it? Stay with us. This is America Change Forever. Welcome back to America Change Forever. Thanks for staying with us. What is the best way to share the vaccine with other countries? Other countries that right now are in desperate need of these vaccines. Michelle McMurray-Heath is the CEO of Bio. There has been a great deal of progress in the fight against COVID-19. I think the latest CDC guidance is testament to how far we've really come in the last year. The CDC's new guidance is essentially saying that the vaccines are working so effectively that we can go back to some sense of normalcy. Michelle, what is it about these vaccines that provide the kind of confidence that the CDC is basing its guidance on? Well, we now have just such incredible real-world data on how well the vaccines are working. And we are really seeing that the vaccines are not only living up to their 92 to 94% efficacy in terms of keeping people from getting seriously ill, but we're also seeing that they're keeping people out of the hospital and they also appear to be cutting down on the rate of transmission um, between vaccinated people and, and those that have not yet received the vaccine. So all of this is very, very promising news, and it's such a relief uh, to see that we're moving in that direction, although there's still a lot of work to be done. Boy, isn't it a relief. I find myself breathing fresh air once again, <laughs> walking around outside now that I've been vaccinated without my mask. These are vaccines, as you know, that were produced in record time. Why were these companies able to move so swiftly on this, whereas in the past with vaccines, it's generally taken much longer? Mm. Well, Jeff, it's a great question. And I think it's clear to so many of us that we have just witnessed a modern scientific miracle. Um, but that miracle came with a lot of um, longstanding investments in the foundation of the science, um, with having a very robust ecosystem of not just innovators, but investors that believe in and back those innovators so that they can pursue their creativity and their ideas for human health to their natural outcomes. Um, and then a lot of partnership and flexibility at the federal level, so that once these scientific ideas started to show promise, they could move through some of the regulatory and other payment hurdles that they often face and make it to patients' arms as quickly as human as we could ever imagine. And so we want to make sure that we celebrate how the great work that's been done, the fact that while we talk about a handful of vaccines that are actually reaching patients, um, the biotechnology industry started over 960 research and development programs um, over the first 12 months of the pandemic, all targeted at trying to either stop um, or prevent COVID. This was an incredible response. Over 190 
COVID vaccine projects were begun. Um, and it's so wonderful to have that many shots on goal because what we saw is incredible success and great collaboration as well. What you're describing here is essentially people from different facets of government and private industry, everyone rowing in the same direction. <laughs> it's novel, isn't it? <laughs> Why can't we do these kinds of things all the time, working for the greater good? And I guess in this case, that's what happened. Well, you're touching on probably the most important lesson of the last year, which is that we've shown what's possible. And we now have to capture these lessons learned and make sure we're applying it to other disease areas where patients are really waiting on the cures. You know, I think up until this last year, it was unclear whether the stumbling block was the science um, or the funding for the science or the regulators. And I'm a former regulator myself. Um, and now it's clear that it was probably a little bit of all of those components. Um, but when you get them to line up and really work together, you can accomplish such amazing goals. And we have so many other um, disease threats that are really impacting the nation and the globe. And we have to apply that same so sort of optimism and unfettered dedication to meeting those goals as well. All right. So let's be honest here. We're not out of the woods yet. Across the globe with COVID-19, when you see what's happening in India, for example, and other parts of the world, there is now this push for companies to share their vaccine data. What's your stance on that? Well, let's start with the most important fact. What's happening in India and in Brazil and in many other places around the globe is a tragedy. And we have to do everything we can to try to stop the spread of COVID, protect more people as quickly as possible. There are many ways to try to go about that. And we have been working very, very closely, not just with the U.S. administration, but with governments around the world to make sure that we are getting these amazing medical miracles out to every corner of the globe. So, you know, the companies that um, are part of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization started these conversations long before this most recent um, turn of events. We have been working with COVAX, which is this global vaccine bank that was set up just to make sure that poor and middle-income countries also got equal access to COVID vaccines as they became available. And the whole premise of COVAX, um, which was in collaboration with the World Health Organization, was that wealthy countries would pay into this vaccine bank. Vaccine manufacturers would assure the, the cheapest prices possible um, to supply COVAX. And then that bank of vaccines would be distributed for free to poor countries um, and at very low prices to middle-income countries. But COVAX has yet to really live into its full um, promise, in part because the U.S. was late to the international party. Under the previous administration, we refused to even engage with COVAX. And now that we've turned that corner, we're only halfway through our $4 billion commitment um, to support the work of COVAX. And so, yes, COVAX has lagged in its ability to deliver these free vaccines to countries around the world, but it's not for lack of trying and it's not for lack of having a good and really well-reasoned plan to get there. And we need to make sure that we are supporting that work. So I, others say, well, actually, the fastest way to do it would be to just waive intellectual property rights um, and turn over the technology that our companies have developed not just through this past year of, co of COVID, but as I mentioned, through decades in some cases of foundational scientific work um, for anyone to use. That's a nice thought 
and it makes a very convenient slogan, but it actually doesn't attack the problem. Vaccine manufacturing facilities take six to 12 months to construct. They are already being used, the ones that are available around the globe with licensing agreements that are already in place between the vaccine innovators and manufacturers that have these facilities ready to go. What stood in the way of those facilities really producing vaccine and getting them out all over the world is some well-intentioned policies that the U.S. has undertaken that have actually limited their effectiveness. So the Defense Production Act, which was really designed to make sure that U.S. manufacturers were helping the U.S. vaccine supply, means that a lot of the raw materials needed for these vaccines cannot be exported from the U.S. So when we talk to our colleagues in India, for example, they're like, we're, we are set up and ready to manufacture the mRNA vaccines, but we can't get some of the 200 critical components that are needed to make those vaccines a reality. Number two, we, the U.S. government has specified that our vaccine manufacturers must fulfill their U.S. orders first before they can export vaccine anywhere in the world. And so while the U.S. is facing into a, a, almost 300 million dose excess of COVID vaccines, our companies are being stopped from sending, sending vaccine to countries around the world that had already had agreements in place to receive it once it became available. So I think we need to clean up our own house first. We need to make sure that we are doing everything we can to get vaccines out um, to everyone who needs them. But it has to be at a very rapid pace. Time is of the essence because we are in a race against variants, and we need to make sure that we are taking the fastest, safest approach to distributing vaccines. Coming up, we'll hear more from Michelle McMurray-Heath right after this. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to America Change Forever. We're discussing the vaccines with Michelle McMurray-Heath, the CEO of Bio. It sounds like people who advocate that you or these companies share their proprietary information. It sounds like they have good intentions. But it does sound odd that you would try to essentially reinvent the wheel in different parts of the world instead of just getting doses of the vaccine on the next flight out. Exactly. And, you know, vaccine confidence has been such a critical piece of this whole effort, and we're still fighting that cause right now. And think about the lack of quality control, the lack of ability to make sure that vaccines are being manufactured to the highest levels of standard and quality um, in every corner of the globe. And think about the impact of that on vaccine confidence. It could be devastating. We need folks to know that the vaccines they're taking have been either approved by the FDA or approved by WHO and the European Medical um, Association and that they can have confidence that those vaccines are going to perform as expected. And it's our concern that if we're now spread across hundreds of countries around the globe, 
it's going to be hard for regulators to keep up and certify that all of those are safe. And that's why the European Medicines Agency, it's basically the European FDA, and it came out last week opposing um, the WTO TRIPS IP waiver um, because they have that concern of there's absolutely no ability or capacity for the regulators to keep up. So as we discuss the efficacy of these three vaccines, which of the three do you think is the most effective and reliable? They all have been incredible and they all meet unique needs um, and will serve different patient populations. So what do I mean by that exactly? When the U.S. Food and Drug Administration was determining whether or not they would certify a vaccine for COVID effective, they set a 60% efficacy rate as their threshold for success. All of the vaccines have exceeded that threshold by 25 percentage points at the minimum, which is incredible. So we are seeing historic levels of vaccine performance in all of the vaccines that are available to the U.S. public. There are children, some as young as 12 years old, now being vaccinated in different parts of the country. So how soon do you think we'll see kids 12 and under being included? Well, I heard the um, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention just last week say that the Pfizer studies were underway for ages 9 through 12, which means we're probably a few months away um, from that data becoming available and that they were doing data in sets of three. Moderna, I know, has studies underway um, in kids as young as six months of age. Um, And so we don't know when that study will come on board. But I am very, very hopeful that, well, when we get to the middle of the summer, we'll have data on all school-aged children and be able to really move forward um, with that full vaccination so that we'll have that confidence and that extra sense of, of safety um, when school starts in September. Michelle McMurray-Heath, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Many thanks to Paul Woody Woodhall and District Productive. For Gil Gross, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.